1: Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast.
0: Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way. At Ollie.com. That's O L L Y dot com.
1: This is Steve Adcock and you are listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: My twenties were sort of a lost decade. Sort of. I finished college, went to medical school, and completed residency. Boom, I was twenty-nine years old and a decade was almost gone. Was I behind? Financially, for sure. I was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and earning next to nothing. Mentally, probably I was behind there, too. I hadn't needed to make grown-up decisions about work or life because I was suspended in the student lifestyle. Did I have to be? Years later, entering my fifth decade, my life looks nothing like I had planned in my 20s. Instead of seeing patients, I supervise teams of healthcare providers. Instead of medicine, I spend most of my time studying the art of communication— podcasting, writing, public speaking. Maybe this is the way things had to be, that I had to stumble for a while before writing myself. Or maybe, or maybe I'm just being easy on myself and what I really needed in my 20s was a good dose of tough love. Steve Adcock is a financial expert who blogs about how to achieve financial independence. A former software developer, Steve retired early at the age of 35. He occasionally writes about money for MarketWatch, Forbes, and Business Insider. His new book, Millionaire Habits, How to Achieve Financial Independence, Retire Early, and Make a Difference by Focusing on Yourself First, will drop in January of 2024. And today we talk about giving tough love to people in their 20s, while this might not be you, it certainly could be your children, nieces, nephews, or next-door neighbor. What will you tell them? Steve Adcock, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I don't get it. Aren't our 20s supposed to be like the carefree time when we don't need tough love, when we go out and experiment and have fun?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for for having me on again, Jordan. And to a, to a degree, I... I do agree that your twenties can't be all work and no play there there's no doubt about that, but you I mean you are the most active you will ever be for the most part you know for most of us in our twenties and leading into our thirties. We have a lot of energy, we may not have kids yet we may not even be be married yet if we get married at all these days, who knows right? So there is an element of you gotta work hard, but you also gotta play hard too. But I think a lot of people emphasize the latter more than the former, assuming that, you know, I'm only 25. I'm going to have so much more time to earn and so much more time to invest, invest and save and all this stuff. So I really don't have to worry about it yet. I can do that later. And then later comes and it's like, well, I've been having fun all this time. I I don't really want to buckle down and do the work now either because I'm so used to not doing it. Or, you know, I'm 38 now. I only have $100,000 net worth. Is it too late for me? What What do I do? You know, those are the types of questions I hear a lot that I get a lot. And the answer is almost always, when you're in your 20s, this is the time to bust your ass. Play hard, but also work hard. That is, this is the time to build your career, make as much money as you possibly can, switch companies, take some risks. Because when you, when you are young and things do go wrong because some risks don't work out, you have way more than enough time to recover from those and continue on up, about your life that way. So I am, I'm always a big, 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 compo- a big proponent of spinning your 20s, busting your ass, and making money so you don't have to play catch up later and you don't have to drastically change your lifestyle in your 30s and 40s to actually start building wealth.
0: I want to go into your personal experience. We're going to eventually talk about your tough love advice that was part of a Twitter thread, actually, that you put out recently. But before we get there, I mean, you became financially independent by the age of 35. So did you do your 20s right? I mean, looking back when you look at your own experience, are you giving this advice out of what you did right or are you giving this
1: advice out of what you did wrong? Well, most of it is wrong. I mean, there's nothing, I mean, I, achieving financial independence when when you're 35. I mean, there isn't a lot that you did wrong if you were able to achieve that kind of, you know, freedom at that at that age. So I can't say that I did everything wrong, but I still, you know, quit my 9 to 5 at 35, but I was also a huge huge spender. Huge spender and I did budget like I used that in quotes, because I stole from my budget all the time. If I wasn't driving as much as, as I thought, and I was racking up all this money in my in in my gas pot. What would I do? I wouldn't save it. I wouldn't invest it. I would just steal that money and buy whatever I wanted anyway. I made so 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 many mistakes. I probably could have quit my job in my maybe by thirty if I had really buckled down in, in my twenties and didn't essentially didn't steal from my future self. The advantage that I had is I had a high salary. My first job right out of college, I was making $55,000 a year, and that was back in 2004. So that's good money back in 2004 for somebody who has literally zero experience. So from that point, I had had all this money coming in, and it just went up from there. And I spent, I saved probably 10% of it, and I spent as much as I possibly could. So I come at this from... Understanding both sides of the this equation. I did make good money. I worked hard at my job. I did the best that I could, but I also spent like a drunken sailor that I probably shouldn't have. Accumulated all these things like the Corvette and the Cadillac and the and the racing motorcycle and all and all that good stuff. So to answer your question, it's a little bit of a mix. Definitely did not do everything right far from it, but a high salary is ultimately what enabled me to to achieve what I achieved at 35.
0: Let's discuss the job because you, as you were saying, it was a fairly high paying job, right? So you had a lot of fuel under you to get to financial independence, but there are a lot of people who are coming out of college and trying to make that decision. Do I go after a job I like, maybe one that doesn't pay me as much versus do I go after the job in which I make more money? And so for sure. you, with your experience, what do you think the right answer to that is?
1: for me it was it was money because my goal was to stop working in corporate america that was my number one priority i don't want to do this anymore from from like the first day i set foot in an office jordan and i do not <laughs> over exaggerate this i was like this is it <laughs> There's no way I could spend the next 45 years of my productive life doing this. So for me, it worked out well that I chose the higher paying job for you, for, for somebody else who is okay working maybe a little bit longer, spending a little bit more. I think that's fine. You don't, you don't necessarily have to pick the highest paying job and you certainly don't want to hate your life. And, and I didn't hate my life. I didn't like what I did but I didn't hate my life either. So there's this, there's a barrier. There's this line in the sand that you don't want to cross. If you dread getting up in the morning, just so you can go to work in some high paying job, that's not healthy either. You are probably going to die young because of stress or whatever. So you don't want that. You don't necessarily need to go that far, but I always encourage people and in whatever field that they choose to work in, choose the highest paying position in that field and go for the money, save as much as you can, invest as much as you can. Because even if you have no interest in retiring early, once you achieve financial freedom, man, that just opens up so many doors for you. You might like your job now, but you might not in the future. And if you are financially free, like this new boss comes in, you don't like that new boss or your company gets bought by another company and everything goes to hell, you can say, I'm done. I'm out. And you don't have to think about the money component. That is the magic of making as much money as you can, saving and investing and achieving financial freedom as early in your life as you can. So
0: the premise for this episode today comes from a Twitter thread from you, Steve. You go by at Steve on speed, I believe. And, I do. Your, and your Twitter threads are actually really, really good. And this one that I picked up on was tough love to give people in their 20s. They're actually a series of 25, 26 comments about what we can tell people in their 20s to help them. And I want to run through some specifically. The first one that really caught my eye was the first one. If you have a comfortable job, you're doing it wrong. Talk to me about that, because I think discomfort is something a lot of us actively avoid.
1: Yeah, that's very true. I like to say that your comfort zone is where your dreams go to die. (laughs) And... What I mean by that is, especially when, when you're young. I mean, it's, it's one thing when you're, when you're close to retirement in your 50s and 60s, I think there's a lot of benefit to having just an easy, comfortable job. But when you're in your 20s, that's not the time for comfort. That's the time to get out of your comfort zone, not only to make as much money as you can, but to understand what you want to do for the rest of your life. I certainly had no idea in my teens and 20s what I, what I wanted to do. I thought I did, so I went into like that closest career path, but you won't necessarily know until you get outside of your comfort zone. You dive in head first. You start, you know, taking these responsibilities that you might not feel ready for, but you still do it anyway. You might be surprised at how capable you are. How much power you have in your own life, in your decision-making, how much money that you can earn, how much responsibility and these these leadership strategies and tips and techniques that you acquire over time. You're not going to acquire those skills if you have a comfortable nine-to-five job. You will, if you get out of that comfort zone, start saying yes more than you say no. And this is something that you will almost never hear, especially on Twitter and other social media platforms. They always encourage you to say no, always say no. But I, when you're in your twenties, that is the wrong advice. Always say yes, then say no to what doesn't work. Because if you always say no, then you're not going to know what works. And I fell into that trap pretty hardcore in, in my early 20s. I got out of it in my, my late 20s when he started to say yes more. In fact, I got this huge opportunity to jump two layers of management in a single day on this one, one Friday. My head was screaming at me to say no, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I have no leadership experience. I've never led one person in my entire life in a, in a corporate setting, but they wanted me to manage the entire IT department overnight. And I freaking said yes, hmm. because I wanted to dive in head first. I wanted to get those skills, and that decision sent me on this salary trajectory that was about 25% more than I was making from that day. From that very day, that salary trajectory just exponentially increased over what I would have made if I said no. So granted, not all of your yes decisions are going to work out, but that's the idea. You know what works and you know what doesn't. Say yes, then say no to what doesn't work.
0: This sounds like a silly question, but I feel like I have to ask it. How do you know when you're being uncomfortable enough? Because that's one thing is I think we put ourselves out there and it's really easy to just get comfortable and forget that you're not putting yourself out there.
1: Yeah, I think that when you start hating your life, you know, (laughs) you've gone too far not when you're struggling not necess- well okay not necessarily when you're struggling when things get hard then you you ramp up your your efforts you do more work you put in longer hours you work smarter you ask for uh, for help all these things combine to help you achieve big things and the key is once those things happen once those big things happen you push through struggles you push through hard times to achieve success that is when the magic happens that's when everything falls into place you know what you're capable of and you feel so so empowered and confident afterwards but when you start hating your life you just cannot think beyond getting up in the morning cuz you don't want to go to work you don't want to face your coworkers you don't want to face your your boss to me that's when you know you've probably gone too far
0: Speaking of hating your life, one thing that people in their 20s do hate is debt. And that brings us to another point you make. You say your designer degree from an overpriced university is overrated most of the time. Talk about education. I feel like my generation, I'm Gen X, and I was definitely pushed by Mm -hmm. my parents to go to the best university possible regardless of the cost. Are we telling kids that anymore?
1: More and more, we're not. And I think there are some degrees like, Lawyers, doctors, maybe some you know pharmacy high 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 tech sales you know some some degrees really do set you up big time for your future career, but those degrees are getting fewer and far between these days. I always like to tell people to think about college in this way. you go to college to earn, not to learn for I would say ninety five percent cent of degrees. That's what happens. All they want is that four-year degree, that piece of paper okay, this guy can do it or this girl can do it. They went through college they're 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 set right they're quote-unquote prepared. so let's bring them in for, for an interview. That's literally all it is. So I always encourage people for the most part with very few exceptions to go to college, go to the least expensive, university that you have access to and that you get accepted to obviously, and just get that four year degree as fast as you can get out and start making money. And one little tip, if money is is an issue for you, then I highly encourage spending your first two years at a community college and then transfer to a four-year degree. Cuz you're going to get the same education for those 2 years. It's like the 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 gen ed requirements that every degree program, you know, in in universities requires, but you're going to spend a fraction of the money on those credit hours by going to a community college first and then transferring those credits to a four-year degree for you to get that degree so you can start applying for for jobs. So that's a that's a interesting trick that I think is a little bit underrated. You don't necessarily have to go to a community college just to achieve a associate's degree and that's it. Don't think about it that way. You are getting a four-year degree. You're just paying way less for the first two years, then transferring in to complete your your degree program and moving on from there.
0: Your next piece of tough love makes me think a lot about college because when I was in college, I developed the habit of going out late on Fridays and Saturdays, right? You'd hit the bar, you'd go to the fraternity parties, something that I (laughs) continued into my 20s because I was still a student. So it's like we didn't change our lives very much because I was in medical school. But you say going to bed late on Friday and Saturday kills your Monday morning productivity. Again, I'm going to come back to this point of I look back at my 20s and think of a little bit more glamorous of a life. And part of that part of that is the kind of partying and having fun and and leaving your worries behind. Is this tough love
1: a little too strict? For some people, it might be. Um, I mean, you as 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 a doctor, you understand circadian rhythm and and what you know what effect staying up really late on like one or two days of the week does to your Monday morning. I think the younger you are, the better prepared you are to handle that. So, I mean, if you're 22 years old and you stay out to three or four a.m. on Fridays and Saturdays, and you're up m- a Monday morning as you always would be, you're ready to go. You get to work, you get your job done. And you don't really feel the difference. All right, cool. Go, go forth, man. Do, do whatever, you know, you're, you, you, you have your heart set on. If that's your thing and it works for you, okay, do it. But you will learn, especially as you get older and sometimes right off the bat, right after you start your career, those Friday and Saturday nights where you basically turn into a different person every single week is going to kill your Monday productivity and sometimes even Tuesdays, depending on what you are doing. So, I mean, yeah, it could be too strict for some people. If it works for you, do it. But I would highly encourage you to think a little bit deeper on this. Does it work for you or do you just want to do it? And I was the latter, believe me. I was the latter. I didn't stay up till 3 or 4 a.m., but I definitely stayed up later on Fridays and Saturdays because I wanted to. And I conned myself. I tricked myself into believing it's no big deal. Monday's fine. But there was no question about it. I really didn't get into my work until maybe late late Monday and Tuesday. And that killed my early week productivity. And that got noticed. And I got passed up for raises. I got passed up for promotions, even when I asked for them in my early career. Of course, by the end, I fixed all that, but it definitely had definitely had a toll on me.
0: Yeah, I can attest to messing with your circadian rhythms. Being in train to become a physician throughout residency, we went whole nights of not sleeping on a regular basis. And I am now decades away from that. And I still have messed up sleep, probably from what happened to me in my 20s. So I totally agree with this idea of getting in a good rhythm. And if you can start in your 20s, all the better. We are going to jump to a specific financial topic. You are a writer about personal finance and you drop in one piece of tough love. You say, save at least, or excuse me, you don't say save, you say invest at least 20% of your income. How did you come up with 20%?
1: I think that's a good number that a lot of people can strive to achieve, but it doesn't seem out of reach. Like by the end of our careers, my my wife and I combined, we were saving slash investing seventy percent, seven zero percent of our combined wow. income. Wow. But there's no way I could recommend that one because most people aren't going to be able to do that. And two, it's going to seem like like even if you can save seventy percent, no one's going to freaking do that. And you don't necessarily have to do that. So that needs to be dialed back. Usually, you will the common recommendation is save 10% and you'll be fine for retirement but doubling that i think that that 20% number is that sweet spot between maximizing your investment potential over the course of a career and being you know possible for most people to do if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're thinking to yourself dude there's no way i can't even i can't even invest 10% much less 20% so there's no way I'm going to be able to do that and quite frankly, that's fine. Now, your 20% should be a goal that you're working toward in the future. As you control your expenses, as you get promotions, as you get raises, that's when you continually increase your your investment percentage over time. This doesn't have to happen overnight. It happens over time. So eventually, you do hit that that 20% number or maybe even more if your goal is to retire a little bit before... I don't know, 60, 62, 65, the more you invest, the more options you're going to have later in life, and you are going to be able to control your retirement age and not the government.
0: I'd add to that this idea that saving 20% when you're in your 20s means something more than saving 20% when you're in your 40s. People don't realize the importance of compounding. And if you do it earlier, you really want to be saving at a higher percentage at an earlier age. And then as you get to a later age, you might
1: not need to.
0: People forget that.
1: That's exactly right. I think you'll find that, that you, we, if you invest, if you started investing in your 20s, you're going to have way more money than you ever thought you were going to have. Even 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years. I mean, this is it's almost magic. The key is you just can't touch it. You cannot day trade. The numbers clearly, clearly, clearly show that passive investors make more money than active investors, period. It's just that simple. So I never once in my entire 42 years of being on this beautiful earth, I have never picked a single stock. I only invest in index funds and, and ETFs. That's it. And that's worked so, so well for me because I don't want to get – I don't care about price to earnings ratios and yields and all these financial t- – that's not what I want to do, man. I want to go out and, ha- and have fun and enjoy my life without worrying about money and numbers and finances. So p- passive investing is the answer. If you're anything like that, unless you're a finance major, passive investing is going to build wealth over time as long as you stay invested. I picked
0: one stock my whole life and it did horribly. So I haven't done that since. (laughs) Let's move over to net worth. You say next, a piece of tough love for people in their 20s is if you think you need $10 million to be happy, you'll never be happy. You know, this is the whole question of does money buy happiness? And, you know, everyone says no money doesn't buy happiness. But I've also felt the backlash of, wait, wait, wait. A certain amount of money definitely leads to more happiness, and not having that certain amount certainly will limit you as a when it comes to basic needs. Talk about why you thought to bring up the 10 million number specifically and why you think it, it will, won't make people happy.
1: I think this comes down to psychology. If you think you need a lot of money, and I just picked 10 million, it could be 20 million, what, you know, whatever. If you think you need a lot of money to be happy, as you start accumulating that that much money and your lifestyle starts to expand so you're living a a more lavish lifestyle you're driving nicer more expensive cars you're living in bigger homes you're taking expensive vacations i mean guess what happens you start to get used to that and that 10 million becomes well i kind of need 15 now or i kind of need 20 or maybe you know what let's just do 50 you know what whatever that Your expectations, when they're set extremely high from the very beginning, continues to increase. And the problem is we start to chase this never-ending goal of just more, always more, always more. And for the, the majority of people, that's not a healthy attitude. That's not a healthy emotion. Always having to have more. I think being content... With what we have is where it all starts. Now, for some of us, yeah. Only having a million dollars, only having a million dollars isn't gonna be enough for some people based on your lifestyle and you know what what you like to do, where you live, your cost of living, those kinds of things. So a million is not gonna work for for everybody. It might be two million, it might be three million, hell, it might be 10 million. But the key here is to understand. What is actually going to make you happy and resist the temptation to keep reaching for more just for the sake of earning more, because that's going to lead into a long career full of burnout, full of stress. And guess what, man? We only have a finite number of years on this earth. It's not just about accumulating money. Yes, it's about accumulating enough to feel happy, to feel this this element of freedom, but when we reach too high, I, I think that sets herself up for a lifetime of always striving f- for more, and that's not necessarily a healthy way to go through life. We are talking to
0: Steve Adcock. He is a financial expert who blogs about how to achieve financial independence. And we are discussing a Twitter thread at Steve on Speed in which he talked about tough love to give people in their 20s. While you may not be in your 20s, certainly your children, nieces, nephews, or next door neighbor may be. What will you tell them? We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? It was one of my favorite budgeting apps, but here's the problem. Mint is disappearing. Now we all are stuck with the question, how will we manage our budget and finances now? Well, I discovered Monarch Money, and I have to tell you, I found it simple, enjoyable, and made for users like me. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. There's so many great things about Monarch. One is it's intuitive. When I signed up, I went to the website, and within minutes... I had had all my accounts downloaded. I connected to all my banks. It is collaborative. It's not only made for people like me, but for people like me to then share it with my spouse or my financial advisor or what have you. And Monarch is so customer focused that they're always looking for ways to improve and make their product serve us better. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. This episode of Earn and Invest is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com earn and get on your way to being your best self. Listen. A common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. And therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships. I know, because when I went to BetterHelp, one of the relationships I wanted help with was that with my father. You see, my father died when I was 7 years old, and I had a lot of unresolved issues. My therapist at BetterHelp was actually really good at helping me talk about those issues and start to find answers that normally I would have tried to find with my father, but since he was no longer around, I had to find them on my own, and having a therapist was incredibly impactful in that journey. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot earn. I'll reintroduce you to Steve Adcock. He is the author of Millionaire Habits, How to Achieve Financial Independence, Retire Early, and Make a Difference by Focusing on Yourself First, which will drop in January of 2024. And we're talking about a Twitter thread of his at Steve on Speed in which he talks about tough love to give people in their 20s. One of those pieces of advice is showing up on time is literally half the battle. I have to tell you, I really like this one, right? Because You've taken it down to the simplest common denominator. Just show up and be present. Is this all it takes? I mean, is it that
1: simple? My dad always used to say that to me, showing up is half the battle. And these days, I think it's more than that. I think it's like 80% of the battle. Maybe even more. It's incredible. The Your competition is probably not as, I guess I'll use the word rigorous, as you think it is like going through my entire career it seemed like people were always looking for reasons not to be there and guess what happens when your managers are looking for for people to step up looking for raises looking to fill positions with promotions if you're not if you're not there if you're not doing your your job the best you can or if you're only there a couple of days a week they just don't don't see you you don't get that face time with your manager, with your boss, you're going to get passed up. It's just that simple. So throughout my entire career, I was always an early morning person. So my butt was in the seat before most of my coworkers. I don't think I worked for a single boss who was ever there before me. So whenever they came in, they peeked in. They always saw me sitting there, and I got opportunities that other people didn't. It's just that simple. And a couple of them admitted to me, they 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 admitted to me that because I was always there when they got there, I was always working before they started working. That made a difference. That helped push me over the edge. And the a lot of the work ethic that you see in corporate America just leaves a lot to be desired. People just don't want to work anymore man. it's de- it, 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 it's that simple. So if you're the kind of person who is okay with working, who is okay with with showing up, doing the best job you possibly can, then I think that alone you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't even necessarily have to be the hardest worker in the room, but you have to be there consistently. you have to care about what you're doing and just smile when you're in the office. I mean, th- these things are not difficult. It is so, so, so easy to ex- to succeed in corporate America these days. It really is.
0: You make the point that people in their 20s, your contemporaries aren't showing up. They're not as interested in kicking butt at work, so to speak. It's just what's happening today. And a piece of advice that you give is that rich people are the best mentors. And so I'm wondering if I'm one of those people, I'm showing up early, I'm putting in that extra oomph that other people aren't, where am I meeting these rich people?
1: Well, some of them might actually be in your office. They don't necessarily have to be, but in in my case, especially, I mean, I went into IT, I was doing software development. I was around a lot of high-income people. So it was easier for me to learn from these types of people. And I think, for most people, we do, have, we do have those out there who are not necessarily rich, but probably doing a little bit better than you are and maybe better than your group of friends that you hang out with. Just keeping your eyes open for the decisions that other people are making, not necessarily just the advice they're giving, their decisions that they're making, that makes a huge, huge difference. I always observed other people in the office. And sometimes, quite frankly, I was learning what not to do. Other times I was learning what to do, but sometimes it was, wow, this outburst in the meeting, there's no way this guy's ever going to be promoted. I'm never doing that in a meeting ever, ever, ever. So, I mean, those kinds of things add up over time when you do keep your eyes open and just observe the people around you. But to meet people who are who are wealthier? There, there are things that you can do, like joining clubs, joining groups in your local communities. And I'm not talking about like money groups or business groups, like a grotto group, right, or a rock climbing group. Just bringing people together. You have, you never know who you're gonna meet. You might not make a lot, a, a lot of money, but this multimillionaire loves to do rock climbing on the weekends. That group is going to connect you with that person and maybe a relationship will form. You never know. And you can learn from that person. So getting yourself out there, meeting new people, however you can, that is going to be how you, how you expand your network. And that's going to be how you expose yourself to people who make more money. And that is how you learn.
0: What about rich people online? I mean, you and I spend a lot of time creating content online for people that we've probably never met face-to-face. That's true. Is the same concept hold true? Or are there different pitfalls when we're dealing with the online community?
1: I mean, there are definitely pitfalls. In fact, I would say that there are more pitfalls than there are benefits. And that's sad to say. I But, but the reason I say that is because numbers can be doctored. I mean, I could bring up Like my bank statement, go into the code and add a zero and say, look, look at how much money I have. There's so many different ways to deceive people when you're online. So that's not to say that every, you know, quote unquote, rich influencer out there isn't actually rich. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is I think you have to. Be a little bit more careful with who you're following online because they only give you one side of the story. You're not having coffee with this person. You don't know how they live. You're not meeting their spouse and their kids. You have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. So I think there are communities that, that you can get involved with online that are beneficial. But I think your guard has to be up a little bit more when you are online because you just don't have any idea who these people are the picture their their thumbnail picture might not be them so i mean long story short you have no idea there is there are there are advantages to following the right people getting to know them establishing that relationship if it's like through dms on twitter or facebook or instagram or whatever but you just have to be a l- little bit more careful in in my opinion in that area
0: another piece of advice you give to people in their 20s is as an adult, it is your responsibility to unlearn the things taught you by society that don't serve you. What types of things does society taught us that aren't serving us or maybe keeping us back?
1: Yeah, when I wrote that, I was thinking about s- school first and foremost. For example, when I went through primary school, it was like K through 12, coming out of high school, I reading was a chore. But I have recently learned that reading is actually fun when you read something that you're interested in. Imagine that. So that's a, that's just a very simple example of the things that you learn early on in life aren't necessarily going to apply in a very strict way later in life. And it's it's, it's a very complicated subject because – I mean, we all learn different things, of course, at at different rates. But experiences, in my humble opinion, experiences are what teach you the most. I think there's benefit in listening to the advice of others. But a better way to learn from those around you or from, from society is to look at what they're saying then look at the result. It's like, this person is telling me this like this is what makes you happy this is what makes you rich this is what makes you successful but but they're not they're they're always upset they always they they almost look suicidal there's something wrong here so that i mean the getting a little bit deeper underneath the, that tweet is understanding what you're learning is the key to observing those around you. And once you do that, once you understand the results, that's that's what's going to teach you way more than just saying, "Oh, this person's doing this. Society wants me to do this. Society wants me to retire at 65 because that's the year, right? That's the official retirement." Screw that. You don't have to retire at 65. That's what that may be what society wants you to do, but they that might not be in your best interest. So, that's Kind of a roundabout, wishy-washy, weird way of answering that that question. I, I understand. But that those were the ideas that was that were going through my head as I wrote that particular tweet.
0: One of the things I think we have to unlearn, which brings us to another piece of tough love, is this idea that our whole goal of going to school is to get A's, right? That's that's our currency in success, is how many A's you've acquired. You say that actually it's the ability to communicate effectively in front of a large group of people. Tell me how that's impacted your career, how it did impact your career when you were in the workplace.
1: Yeah, the ability to speak, especially to public speak, is, I would say, in most cases, going to get you way, way further than just getting good grades. I graduated high school with a solid. 2.5 GPA. And as we all know, the best GPA is 4.0. So I was far from that. Far, far, far from that. I still went to college. I still got a good job with a great salary. Once that happens, I mean, once you are in your career, once you set foot in that office, your grades don't matter. 4.0, 2.0, it doesn't freaking matter. So don't, focus especially if you're out, out of school and you didn't get good grades it doesn't mean you're dumb it doesn't mean you're you're an idiot it just means you you didn't really do well in school i was like that too but that should not stop you from achieving great things in life and the ability to stand up in in a in a meeting you're asked a question instead of shying away and you know low voice kind of timid you look very Unconfident and that those are the types of traits that don't set yourself set yourself up for raises and promotions in in the future when you can just stand up confidently, deliver your answer, sit back down, boom, everybody else around you is like, Whoa, this guy, th- this girl, whoever they are, they can talk they they know what they're doing. That's happened so many times in my career, both with me. And with somebody else, like a a contemporary who I kind of underestimated, I won't lie, I've done that before, based on how they act, just in general, kind of with withdrawn, don't like to talk much, but they stand up, they stand up in a meeting and give an eloquent answer. It's like holy shit, I, I would I, I would promote this person if I was in a position of of leadership. That works. That works so so well. And the reason is. Because most people aren't good speakers, they are they they are not confident in their answer. They're not they they believe that they're just being judged. That have all these eyeballs on them. What am I going to say? What if I make a mistake? But once you get past that, and it does take practice, I totally get that. But once you get past that, it's like this this weight is lifted off of your shoulders. I can tell anything to anybody. I can convince anybody of anything that is a career enabler.
0: Your last piece of tough love that I want to talk about feels a little different from the others. You say mm-hmm. that if you can sit in total silence for 60 minutes with no distractions, no phone, no computer, and be happy, you are destined for greatness. Tell me about why you included this one.
1: A lot of us are afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of our thoughts. We're we're afraid to just be alone. And I think there's value in you know, having music to like wrap us up to, to do work or whatever. But when we always need that distraction, when we always need the music, when we always need the cell phone, when we always need something to be interacting with, that means that we can't just sit and process. I think when we go on walks, we go out in nature. Sometimes we, we have music. Sometimes we don't that. Those are the times where we start to reflect on our lives, the decisions that we're making, and we can finally admit to ourselves, this isn't working. Or may, may, maybe it's the opposite. Like this worked well, I need to double down here. But when you're always distracted, when you're always you know looking at something, a shiny object, chasing the next big thing, we don't give ourselves the time to, to self-reflect. On the decisions we're making and the successes that we're having and how we feel every day. For the longest time, I was in that trap. I always had to have something to do. I always had to be doing, you know, whether it's on the computer or the phone or whatever. And I went through years of my life just kind of muddling through Because I didn't give myself the opportunity to say, this is not working. I need to make a change. Eventually, it came to a head. But the ability to think about things in a almost like nobody's around you, maybe trees, whatever, (laughs) you're on a walk. I just, I can't stress walks enough. And, And you're like, wow, I've never thought clearer. Just try it. Just try it one time. If you're used to having music, your cell phone, whatever, leave your cell phone at home. Leave the headphones at home. Just try it once. Listen to the ambient sounds. Go for an hour-long walk. Your brain will start to process things that it probably wouldn't have done when you had those distractions in your life. Try it once. I bet you're going to be hooked.
0: We're talking to Steve Adcock at Steve on speed for his Twitter thread about tough pieces of love to give to people in their twenties. Steve, do people in their twenties today have it any different than people did a decade or two ago? I mean, is this tough love timeless or is this specifically for people today in their twenties?
1: For the most part, I believe it's timeless that I, I think that's the the easiest answer. Nothing has i mean things have changed things have changed to to a degree, for example, I believe people's in general people's work ethic has decreased over time in general there there are exceptions of course, but in general, I think it has so these things when you put them together and when you understand that I don't have to be the best in the room and that's something that I was taught I think when I was a kid not necessarily at home but in school society in general you have to be the best you always have to be the best or you're not going to stand out you're not going to to succeed unless you're the smartest person in in the room you can do all these things you have all these skills guess what that's not the, that just doesn't work that's not what you have to do it's because your competition isn't all that great these days so all of these things i think even they applied 20 years ago but they especially apply today because of americans especially americans work ethic so as americans work ethic continues to decline these these tough love tweets that, that I wrote, I think will continue to be more and more important because you don't have to be the best. You just have to show up. You have to try your best, do the best job you possibly can, be a happy-go-lucky person in the office, create this positive kind of vibe uh, around you. That is what employers want because they hire for fit. They don't necessarily hire just because of the skills you have. And if you take nothing from this podcast, I want you to take this. If you're looking for a job, understand from an employer's standpoint, it's easy to teach the job. It's easy to teach skills. It's easy to teach those things, but it is impossible to teach personality. It is impossible to teach fit. That is what the interview is about. It's not just about you answering the technical questions. It's about understanding that is this person going to fit with our company culture? And the happier you are, the more you you smile, the more opportunities you are going to get. It's that simple.
0: Steve, is the tough love any different for people in their 30s or 40s?
1: I don't think so it i mean you, you may not necessarily have to hustle quite as much as you as i think that you should in your 20s especially as you get in into your 40s that's where you really start to hone in on what works and and, and what works well so that's when you do i think want to say no to opportunities that you know just aren't for you but guess what you know those opportunities aren't for you because you said yes to them in your 20s. And you can avoid the mistakes the closer you get to retirement because you don't have as much time to recover from those mistakes as you get closer to your, to your re- retirement years. I think they still apply, but less so as you get older.
0: Steve, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. Listen, I know people listening to this podcast are not necessarily all in their 20s, but most of us know someone who is and find ourselves giving advice to them. Again, whether that be our children, our nieces, our nephews, our neighbors, most of us know someone in their 20s, and often they come to us looking for advice on how to do things. But the other key point is, even if you're not in your 20s, it's not too late to take the kernel of some of these pieces of tough love and apply them to your life right now. I want to end this episode the way and every episode, Steve, by asking you what is up next in your life and how people can get in contact with you. First and foremost, what is going on with Steve Adcock?
1: Well, my main priority right now is finishing up my book, Millionaire Habits, as as you talked about before, that's releasing in January. I never wanted to be an author, but I decided what the hell. I said yes because I don't know what's going to ha- happen here, but I like the idea of pushing my my message a little bit further, and it is a positive one, and, and I think it's going to change a lot of people's lives. So, really, how could I not? A- as you know, I spend a lot of time giving back on social media, and that's how I, I get the the attention that I have. Write a lot on CNBC and and other outlets. It's hard to even think of myself as a retired at these days because I don't know how I ever had time to work a full-time job. I am involved in so much that keeps me busy, keeps me productive, keeps me feeling like I'm actually making a positive difference out there, especially on social media, especially with my email list, which is also called Millionaire Habits. All these things combine into pushing forward the message that you don't have to be born rich. You don't have to inherit your wealth. In fact, most millionaires didn't inherit their wealth. Look it up. It's true. And that message is going to change people's lives. And that is what gets me up in the morning.
0: Your Twitter handle is at Steve on Speed. What are other ways people can get in touch with you, interact with your contact?
1: Absolutely. That is the main one. I'm also over on Instagram at Millionaire Habits, Habits without the A and the I. So HBTS. And my website, SteveAdcock.us, and my newsletter website, MillionaireHabits.us.
0: Well, Steve Adcock, I look forward to reading your book and thank you for coming on the show today.
1: You got it, Doc G. I appreciate the opportunity. I always love coming on your podcast. That's a wrap.
0: Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. So I have to admit, I'm going to be a little wish-washy here. Everything Steve said in this episode today is correct. Everything Steve said today in this episode, I would tell my children 100% to do. The evidence is clear. Compounding is real. Good habits in our teens and 20s can lead to having investments early, and those investments can compound to such an extent that by the time we hit our 30s or 40s, we could have enough money to live for the rest of our lives. On the other hand, if we fool around in our 20s and wait till we're 30 to start saving, even if we save the exact same amount of money but one decade later, compounding is slowed down and it could take even longer to get there. The phenomenon is real and no personal finance expert could ever tell you to ignore it. But... But I also realized that we are only in our 20s once, and I really loved my 20s. I was in the middle of medical school and then residency, so I had my head to the grindstone. I was working hard, but we also played hard. We went out a lot. We spent money. We enjoyed ourselves. The truth is, most of us weren't worried about saving that much money. I am lucky, I came from modeling with good parents, and I had a little inheritance money, so generally I was fine. But I wouldn't have wanted to trade my 20s for anything, and I certainly didn't take all the tough love Steve gave us today. I certainly didn't take that into account when I was that age. The question is, should we be telling our friends, family members, and children... All these things, should we be giving them this tough love or should we recognize that it's okay to start a little bit later? It's okay not to be perfect when it comes to compounding. It's okay to know that you're going to have to make up for it later and that it'll be a little harder, but that you can enjoy your 20s for what they are, which is a time of being young and free and maybe Just a little more careless than you're going to be in the rest of your lives. I don't have a perfect answer for this. I think you can argue it either way. But I think the other side needs to be presented. I think we need to tell people that it's all right if you are not perfect. If you're good enough, if you start in your 30s, you save as much as you can, you invest wisely you budget, you do all the correct things in your 30s, that's okay also. You just might not be an early starter. Listen, not everyone else is. There are other pathways to wealth, and all of them do not include starting immediately when you turn 22 and leave college or when you leave high school and get your first job Or whatever it is. In fact, for a portion of the population, maybe they shouldn't even worry about their twenties and they should start in their thirties. And maybe if they like their job, they'll realize that they can work longer. Maybe you don't want to retire. And so when you hit 45 and your net worth is better, you find a job that you're passionate about that pays you about half as much, maybe enough just to cover the bills and then let compounding do its thing with the investments you already have multiple different pathways for multiple people. I think that's the way we have to start looking at how we manage our money. If you put your head down to the grindstone, work really hard, invest, you probably can reach financial independence in 10 to 15 years, regardless of when you start. So I've seen people do this in their 40s. I've seen people do it in their 50s. Yes, it is harder, but it's a trade-off. And in fact, I think we need to remember that's what money is. It's a trade-off. You are trading your time and your energy for this potential energy, this money, which you can then use to get you other things. But because it's a trade-off, we have real decisions. And I truly can't make those decisions for you. Steve and I can talk till our faces are blue about what you should be doing in your twenties. But ultimately, ultimately, the decision is yours. It behooves you to choose wisely and decide which path you want to take. The key is to be intentional. Awesome, I leave things running for a few minutes just to catch our chat for the after show. Um, cool. Yeah, I, I loved your. I, I like your Twitter threads in general. So I've read lots of them. I'm, I, I don't do a huge amount of Twitter, but I definitely look in there. But I almost always find something good. And I really thought this thread drove some great ideas home. And I think it's ultra also helpful because a lot of us do have someone in our lives who are at that place, even if we are not ourselves.
1: That's that's exactly right, and that's why I I wrote it. I know the the majority of my followers aren't in their twenties. I mean, they're like. They're late 30s, 40s, 50s, but it still did well. And maybe they're forwarding it to, to somebody or telling somebody to, to read it. I don't know. But yeah, definitely, definitely what worked well. And for me on social media in general, tough love is what works for me. The touchy feely, always positive. You can do it. You know that those kinds of things just They don't do as, it's very strange, but they just don't do as well, at least for me. So who knows, but works for me. (laughs) As I was saying,
0: there's a place for it, but it depends on who you are and what type of content creator you are. And I don't think that's ever been, you know, because I've known you now, what, from since maybe 2017, 2018, I've been following your content and I've had you on the show a Mm -hmm. few times. Like, that's just not your personality. Like, I don't, that's right. And I don't know if it would work. Like, A, A, I think I agree with you. I think more hardcore informational versus, emotional empathic is needed especially in some of this stuff um but sure. it's also not who
1: you are i don't think right that that's right i think i mean as a content creator you have to be consistent with your tone and how you present the message and for me it's kind of an in your face you don't like it shove off kind of kind of kind of tone kind of vibe and as long as I'm consistent with that, that that's what, that's what brings people in. And ultimately I do want to build a huge audience because I want to reach as many people as I possibly can. Ultimately why I said yes uh, to writing the book. Um, and the book, But is, I hated I, the process less than, than I thought it w- yeah. thought it would to be book, honest with books you. Books <laughs> can be
0: painful depending. So I, um, my book came out, it's my year anniversary. So mine came out in August awesome. of
1: 2022. Um,
0: yep. I'll tell you, so a, a year of reflection, um, We're used to creating short-form content, right? A lot of our articles, Mm -hmm. even a podcast, I consider really short-form content in a sense. A book is a whole different thing. And so to me, it was really meaningful because it's not... So in order for someone to look at one of your articles or even listen to a podcast, they might give you know five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe at most for a podcast an hour, right? But for someone to buy your book and dive into it, that's a real commitment of hours. That's a commitment, yep. And so it's Mm -hmm. a much fuller conversation all in one place. So the upside of that is like, so my podcast over the years, I've had millions of downloads. My book probably sold 13,000 or so, 13, 14,000 or so in the first year. So it's a much smaller audience. Yeah. But the connection is very different. And I think you'll find Mm -hmm. that the connection you have with people who buy your book is different than the people who read your tweets or look at your
1: articles or go to your blog. Yeah. I would imagine the majority of the people who read my book don't even, won't even know that I'm on social media, which will be a very interesting, it'll be interesting to, to see how they react to it. But yeah, as I was writing, I'm so used to short form stuff, like distilling everything down to the yeah. simplest form, easy to 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 consume. But when I was writing the book, it was like, always expand, got to expand, got to expand, yeah, yeah. more words, more, more, more paragraphs, more detail. And that was That was very weird, very different for uh, for me.
0: Yeah, there's a we we, you we get used to being concise, really concise and impactful. With because you realize I have to make most words count. A book is a little different. You still have to make all the words count, but you can you can be more expansive, right? That's right. You can say those things normally in our the way we create stuff. Because I blogged for lots of years, I've written articles. Normally, we leave a lot to the reader to say. Okay. This sentence suggests mm-hmm. some things and I can run with that in my head without the author specifically exactly. writing it all down in a book. It gives you actually the space to to actually get granular and say, OK, I said the sentence. Now let's really dive into what that means.
1: Yeah, there's social media is not the place for nuance, but. <laughs> your book is that's the i mean every tweet i have ever written there's always pages of nuance that goes on beneath the the service that obviously i don't talk about because it's social media but yeah that that book is the perfect 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 place for it um i think i've i filled a hundred and i'm hoping for 175 to 200 pages uh by the end so i think that's a pretty good about sixty
0: thousand words or so yeah
1: yeah Yeah. about that
0: that's and i think Nowadays, for personal finance stuff, I don't think you want to go too far over that, right? So you want it to. That's a good. And I'm I'm working on a my second book proposal right now, and sixty thousand oh, awesome. is kind of what I'm looking at. And uh, okay. I think it's I think it's a sweet spot, which comes out to about two hundred pages or so.
1: Yep, that's that's about right. Who's who's your publisher, or who so, do you want to be your your publisher?
0: So I just got a contract sent to me from Harriman House. Oh, okay. Um, so, awesome. Harriman House is like Morgan Housel, JL Collins' new book, um, Nick Majuli. Um, yep. Yep. So, I, this one, so my first book, so I have an agent, and my first book we sent out to lots and lots of people. I didn't have a huge amount of success, but eventually went with a small independent press called Ulysses. This okay. book, instead, I went through connections and actually contacted a person and then worked on the proposal with the person at Harriman. Um, that's great then (laughs) and that made a little bit more sense i think and so i didn't i didn't shop this one this one just went straight to them um okay but i'm really excited about it so my first book was called taking stock and it was what i learned as a hospice doctor about money and life and there was a lot of talk in there about Mm -hmm. purpose and identity and connections and how that relates to money so my next book is going to be a little bit more granular on purpose and why we get it wrong and why because purpose there's a paradox when it comes to purpose like purpose oh yeah We've found that purpose, like if you look at the studies, people who have a sense of purpose, live longer, are more healthy, and are more happy. And yet, there are other studies that show that 92% of people at some time in life have had purpose anxiety, meaning, oh my God, I don't know what my purpose is. This feels really bad. So it's this paradox yeah. of how can it be both like the most important thing and yet incredibly anxiety-ridden. And my theory is that we look at purpose incorrectly. And so this book is going to be kind of laying out how we should be okay. looking at purpose how this paradox plays out in our life, and and how we kind of go about it. That's awesome.
1: I love yeah. that topic.
0: Yeah, it's it's it naturally flows from my first book because my first book did so much talking about purpose that it was kind of like okay, there's it's it's a it's a natural next step.
1: Right? Sure. Yep. Exactly. Great man. That's awesome. Good, we'll see. Good luck with you, that. You you know how have it you started is with... the writing?
0: So I mean, I've done a really extensive outline, and I wrote the intro. Um, OK, cool. but the outline really. So I did an outline in paragraph form and it's the outline itself is about 5000 words. So it's pretty extensive. So I know okay. I kind of know where I'm going. I have every chapter named and and marked out. Um, awesome. But it'll be it's a grind. And my goal is so, you know, the process is once you actually sign a contract, it can be up to two years. So my goal is, is to write it in six months and then usually they need about a year to get it like all settled and marketed and distributed. So that's editing sure. yeah, will probably it happen.
1: T- yep. It took me about six months uh, to write mine and we're just now in the editing process now. So Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Full Money.